0: Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 16. Nice to be predictable. Verses uh, 1 through 21. The title to our message this morning is The Feast in the Wilderness. And remember that as you turn there, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Exodus chapter 16, starting in verse 1. They set out from Elam, and all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The people of Israel said to them, Quail came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay around the camp. When the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake like thing, fine as frost on the ground. When the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread. That the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. You shall take an omer according to the number of the persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack But when the sun grew hot, it melted. May God bless the preaching of his word. Let's pray. Lord, you told the people of old that you are the Lord, their God, who delivered them out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth and I will fill it. So Lord, we open our mouths now. We open our souls, our spirits to you now. Fill us now, fill us with the manna from heaven, that we may be filled to the fullness of God, that we might be able to see the height and depth and the length and the breadth of the love of Christ which surpasses all knowledge. For we pray it in his name, amen. All right, you may be seated. If you're just now joining us, the Israelites are now in the wilderness on their way to the promised land. And what we're reading here in the scripture is both a historical fact, it really happened, and it's a type, a shadow, a foretelling, a picture of our way as Christians to glory. Glory. Typologically, we saw that our salvation um, is in Christ when the Passover lamb was slain and when Pharaoh and his army was killed at the Red Sea, that all of our enemies have been defeated. Now, as Israel travels to the promised land, what we see is our sanctification in this life. The Lord is testing Israel just as he Tests our faith and isn't interesting in the reading that we saw this morning from from Ben. Jesus goes into the wilderness to be tested. Adam failed. Israel failed. But our Lord was tested and he triumphed over the devil. Last week we saw that Israel was tested at the waters of Mara. This morning he tests them by giving them their daily bread from heaven. Now, just like, I feel like every week I come up here and I say, this is the most important passage in all of the Bible. This is one of those mornings. This passage shapes scripture, just like the Passover lamb did, just like the Red Sea Crossing did. Um, the bread from heaven, it's sung about in the Psalms, Psalm 78, 105, 81. It becomes the content of national prayer in Nehemiah's day, Nehemiah 9, 15, 9, 20. It is the object lesson that Moses points to in Deuteronomy 8.3. Jesus quoted it to the devil. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. It's forever enshrined in the Lord's prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Um, It is in all four of the gospels, six times, Jesus reduplicates this miracle by turning a handful of bread into enough food to feed thousands. But most vitally, in John 6, Jesus authoritatively teaches us what the bread from heaven really meant. In John 6, 32 through 33, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And it's his very first I am statement. I am the bread of life. Dear congregation, this feast that God gave Israel in the wilderness is no ordinary feast. It's Christ himself. It, he was to be their daily bread. And what we learn from this immediately is that Jesus Christ is not just given to us one time. At the beginning of our salvation, we believe in him through faith, we're saved, and then we kind of put him away and move on to bigger and better things. No, Jesus is the supper that we feast on again and again and again. He's the very bread of the gospel, not the gifts that he gives us, but Jesus himself. He is, as one Puritan called him, the glorious feast of the gospel. So let's consider this feast that God has spread for Israel in the wilderness. First of all, we we see that Christ is an undeserved feast, an undeserved feast. Verse one tells us that Israel arrives now at the wilderness of sin. And of course, it's a very fitting title in the English, but it was really an Egyptian town. um, And it's Translates as marshy or muddy But I do think that there's an interesting parallel here For those of you who have read Pilgrim's Progress Just what was the first thing that Christian ran into After he left the city of destruction the slew of despond, right? He, he fell right into this swamp of despair, this muddy bog. And now we find Israel leaving the city of destruction, Egypt, and they find themselves in this muddy place called the wilderness of sin. And sinning is precisely what they did. They were drowning in it. Look at verse 2. The whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. They grumbled just like at Marah. And it's emphasized eight times in our passage in verse two, verse seven, verse eight, verse nine, verse 12. But here Moses explicitly calls this grumbling against the Lord. Halfway through verse seven, he has heard your Grumbling against the Lord, for what are we that you grumble against us? Halfway through verse 8, the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? End of verse 8, your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. And this grumbling is very specific. Um, Look at verse 3. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They didn't learn anything from the first test. Instead of praying and asking God to supply them with the food, they complain and covet and they accuse. I'm I'm certain that we've never experienced anything like this. Here they experience the greatest miracle in the Old Testament, in the ancient world, and yet they instantly despise and curse and blame God for it. We experience the greatest miracle in the modern world through regeneration, through the new birth, and how often do we fall in this same bog? <clears throat> they looked back on their slavery with, with longing, with desire. They say, oh, if we just were back with those meat pots, if we just had that bread. They preferred full bellies to the God of the universe. But there's something more That you need to see Look again at verse 2 It says And the whole congregation Of the people of Israel grumbled The whole congregation Last week I mentioned that Israel at this point Was a mixture of believers and unbelievers Who is grumbling here? All of them, unquestionably, all of them, the whole congregation grumbled, both the unbeliever and the believer. They rebelled against the God who delivered them from Egypt. All of them accused God of trying to kill them. All of them preferred their slavery to him. All of them were entirely undeserving of the smallest crumb of bread. All of them deserved the wrath of God. And that brings us to our first principle. There is no one single human being, believer or unbeliever, who deserves this feast. There is no one single human being, believer or unbeliever, who deserves this feast. I I love Reformation Sunday. We remember on this particular Sunday that God has recovered the free grace of the gospel 500 years ago during the Protestant Reformation, and it transformed the world. It transformed everything. That's what the gospel does. And all Christians, no matter if you're reformed or not, they will say, well, yeah, we're, we're saved by grace but it's Reformed theology in particular that shows how radically undeserved and free that grace is. How sinful is mankind? Loved ones, how sinful are you? How sinful am I? In 2008, um, before I re- embraced uh, uh, reformed theology, perhaps the better way to say it is before God whacked me over the head with a baseball bat, I, I would have totally said, yeah, I, I'm very sinful. All Christians can say that. But as I was studying these things, God the Holy Spirit opened up my eyes, the eyes of my heart to see something that I'd never seen before. I was reading Romans three ten through 12, a passage that all of us are familiar with. And this is what it says. None is righteous, no, not one. Listen to how many no's and nots are here. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Hundred times I'd heard that. Hundred times I'd read that. I'd always applied that verse to those especially wicked people over there but not to me. Certainly, I wasn't one of those who didn't seek God. Certainly, I wasn't one of those that were worthless. Certainly, I had done at least some good thing, right? I mean, I was a Christian after all. And as I was reading that passage at my dinner table, it was the closest thing that ever I've ever experienced in terms of the new birth because I just always remember being saved. The fear of God came over me. And my knees started knocking, and I realized that these especially wicked people that the scripture was talking about included me. That includes you. This is all mankind. No one deserves the feast in the wilderness, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And we never start deserving the feast in the wilderness. Well, now that we're Christians, now I deserve the feast, right? Wrong. Jesus said, Jesus kept on knocking down our pride. Listen to what he says here in Luke seventeen ten. So you also, you believer in me, when you have done all that you were commanded, this is what you're to say about yourself. We are unworthy servants. We are worthless servants. We have only done what was our duty. Salvation is completely and unequivocally undeserved. That's where we have to start. And that's our first principle. There's no one single human being who deserves this feast. Let's then look how this Feeds into our second point. Christ is a heavenly feast. As God looks down on these undeserving sinners in the wilderness, these wicked worms of the earth who accused Him, the holy God, of trying to murder them, what should He do? What would you do? If the power of God was in your hand, you just rescued a whole nation. And then they turn around and accuse you of wickedness and murder. I know what he should do. I mean, we've read about this in Genesis, right? God rained down fire and brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. Certainly that's what's coming next, right? Look at verse four. Then the Lord said to Moses, behold, I am about to rain bread. From heaven for you. Not brimstone, but bread. Not the fires of hell, but a feast from heaven. And these are the moments where you just have to stop in scripture and admire the grace of God. What type of a God are you? What type of a God is God? Page after page. We come to David later on. David, the one who committed uh, adultery and murder. And what does God do with him? He takes his son, who is the illicit union with this adulterous woman, and he makes him the ancestor of Jesus Christ. That's us. Or Paul, who's killing Christian after Christian after Christian. Oh, what should we do with him? I know what we'll do. We'll make him a writer of scripture. And here we have the Israelites. They accuse God of of trying to murder them. And what does God do? He gives them bread from heaven. What kind of a God is this God? But it's not just any bread. Look halfway through verse 9 Aaron tells Israel, Come near before the Lord. The sin doesn't drive God away. Rather, he bids them to come near him. Verse 10, and as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. This is the first time in scripture where that phrase Is used, the glory of the Lord. Calvin rightly says here that that this glory is not what they regularly saw in the pillar of cloud, but this was manifested to them in a very unusual manner. Something was about to happen that they had never seen. Halfway through verse 12 say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat. And in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening, quail came up and covered the camp. And in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake-like did not know what it was. Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. You'll notice in the ESV there's a little footnote next to the what is it question. Um, that phrase in the Hebrew is the same word for manna. It literally means a whatness. Manna means what is it? And what a, what a fitting name. There was nothing like it on all the earth. They had never seen anything like it before. It's one reason why Psalm 78.25 calls it the bread of angels. It was supernatural bread. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.3 calls it spiritual food. It came down from heaven, from the throne of God himself. Bread was given by the glory of the Lord in the cloud. Bread came to undeserving sinners. And that brings us then to our second principle. God sent his son from heaven to be a feast of life for sinners. God sent his son from heaven to be a feast of life for sinners. And loved ones, this is the first glory of the gospel. Just as the manna was a free gift From God to undeserving Israel, so God sent Jesus Christ, his son, into the world freely and graciously and without price. Jesus said in John 6, 32, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the bread from heaven. Do you you hear what Jesus is saying to you? My father gives you you believer, the bread from heaven. He gives it to you freely. This is not something that you had to earn. This is not something that you had to merit. No amount of good works could ever secure this for you or purchase it for you. It's free heavenly bread. The second glory of the gospel is that this free heavenly bread, it solves your greatest crisis. Certainly, Israel had a food supply problem. 2.5 million plus Israelites, do the math, their food was going to run out. And God solved that crisis with daily manna. But what was their greater crisis? Their sin, their rebellion. What would become of their sin against God? Well, the wages of sin is death, the scripture says. That's what they deserve. But what does God give them instead? He gives them this bread. And the whole point of this sign is that it pointed to what Jesus would do for us. In John 6, Jesus says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Christ's own flesh is our bread, meaning his death is what gives us life. The third glory of the gospel is that this life that we receive from Christ is by faith alone. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. How do you come to Christ so that you will never hunger? The second part of the verse tells us you believe in him. You receive his promises. And so those three summaries of the gospel we see right here in Exodus chapter 16. God the Father freely gives the feast. Secondly, God the Son himself is the feast. And number three, we partake in this feast by faith alone. When the Israelites feasted on the manna with their mouth, they lived. And when we feast on the manna from heaven, on Christ, by faith alone, we have everlasting life. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. That's our second principle. God sent his Son from heaven to be a feast of life for sinners. Thirdly, Christ is an all-satisfying feast. Consider, first of all, how God provided this manna in such abundance so that everyone ate all that they wanted. Uh, Verse eight, Moses said, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full. Halfway through verse 12, in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Verse 16, this is what the Lord has commanded gather of it each one of you as much as he can eat. End of verse 18, each of them gathered as much as he could eat. (laughs) This, This bread satisfied their hunger every single day. No one could ever say, I'm still hungry. What a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ! how he fills the soul, and yet there's always still more of him to give again and again and again. Just as there was always more manna, so there is always more Christ. All ordinary food can be consumed. You can can empty out your refrigerator and have no more food, but with Christ, there's always more. That was his point in the, the feeding of the 5,000 in the New Testament. He, he fed them all that they desired. It uses the same language. And then it says that they picked up all the leftovers and it filled 12 baskets full. 12 baskets full. Enough for the church for all ages. But there's more. There's another description of this bread in verse 31. Now, the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. How delicious does that sound? Hey, what are you having for breakfast, Bob? Wafers made with honey. Wafers made with honey. Children, boys and girls, imagine how different the Exodus account would be If instead of bread from heaven, God sent down lima beans instead. The Israelites wake up every morning and they didn't find angels' bread. Instead, they found lima beans. (laughs) Would that be very exciting to wake up to? I don't know if I'd get out of bed, honestly i 'm going to fast today. Um, now, I know that God made lima beans for His glory, and they are nutritious. But lima beans are for vitamins, and bread is for joy. Bread is for joy. That's why the kingdom of God in, in Matthew 1333 is compared not to lima beans, but it's compared to to bread dough that's ready to be baked and to be given out for joy. That's why Jesus did not say, I am the lima beans of God. No, he said, I am the bread of life. And that brings us into our third principle. The feast of Christ is the sweetest and the most satisfying feast of the soul. The feast in the wilderness was a true pleasure to eat because Christ is the richest and and choicest, best banquet. All hungry souls find everything that they could ever want. The Puritan Richard Sibbs put it like this, The special graces and favors of God are compared to a rich feast made up of the best things, full of all varieties and excellencies. And the chief dish... That is all in all is Christ. All other favors and blessings, whatsoever they are, are but Christ dished out. He is the feast itself. He's dished out in every divine promise. What Sibs is getting at is that the gospel message, the good news, is not eternal life or forgiveness of sins it's jesus himself who provide who is eternal life who is the forgiveness of sins and furthermore all who feast on this christ this heavenly manna become like him jesus was the feast of paul's soul even when he was in a roman prison and and the, Philippian, the letter to the Philippians was the most joyous letter in the New Testament, and he wrote it while he, he was in jail. And why could he have so much joy? Because Christ was his, was his feast, and he said things in that letter that surpassed the greatest poets the world has ever seen. He says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And he could say that because Christ was the feast of his soul. It didn't matter if he was looking at jail, prison bars. But on the other hand, Nero, Caesar Nero, who was responsible for beheading him, he never feasted on Christ. He was the most powerful man in the world. His soul never tasted that manna from heaven. And what kind of soul did he have? He was an animalistic pervert who burned Rome and committed suicide. What we feast on is what we become. Dear congregation, Jesus is that wafer made with honey. He is the sweetness itself to the soul. He alone can satisfy your soul such that eye cannot see, nor ear can hear, nor can it ever enter into the heart of man. You can't even imagine the sweetness of Christ. The more you feed off of him, uh, the more you have desires awakened in your soul that you didn't even know were there. You have new desires that come to the fore and you realize that Christ fulfills those too. Again, listen to what Sib says here. Are we foolish? Then Christ is our wisdom. Have you guilt in your conscience? Then he is our righteousness, and that righteousness is imputed to us. Are we defiled? Then he is our sanctification, Are we in misery Then he is our redemption? If there be a thousand kinds of evil in us, there are a thousand ways to remedy them by Jesus Christ. Are we weak? He is meat to feed us that we may be strong. He is the best of meats. He is the marrow. Are our spirits faint? He is our wine, the best aged wine, well refined, and he will refresh us. Think about that today when we're sipping warm wine in the cold winter on Reformation Day party, that Christ is the fine wine. That's our third principle, that the feast of Christ is the sweetest, most satisfying feast of the soul. Fourthly, Christ is an experimental feast, meaning that this feast in the wilderness was a test. Test to Israel. Notice in verse 4, he tells Moses he's going to rain bread from heaven so that, end of verse 4, I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. Notice carefully, when God tests them in this verse, when does he test them? He tests them in abundance, when rain, when it, when it rains bread from heaven. In other words, this test is not going to be a test of affliction. It's going to be a test of abundance. When God gives them all that they desire, abundant food every day, will they still follow him? The specific tests are seen starting in verse 16. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it each of you as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer. It's about two quarts. According to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. Now, God graciously tells them what each person needs for daily living. Now, I suppose they could have taken less than this, but this was the maximum amount that was allowed, two quarts. So in gathering this heavenly food, they were taught two important lessons. Number one, to love their neighbor as themselves, to make sure there was enough for all. We're going to see that in our offering today. And then number two, that they would trust God every day to provide for them. You can only take this much. Why? Because I'm testing you to see if you're going to trust me. This is reinforced in verse 19. Moses said to them, let no one leave any of it over until the morning. Now, children, don't get your hopes up here. Uh, God is not against leftovers. Um, But in this particular case... He was saying, "Don't leave any overnight." He's he's uh, he, he's against here. What he's against is he's against them shifting their trust away from him to trust in the means. In the means, to place your trust in the means, your paycheck, your. The food in your fridge, your ability to work, to trust in those things, is to take on another God, even if God gave you those things. Were were Israel to trust God every day and to keep coming to him for that heavenly manna, they would have demonstrated that they were fully content in him alone, uh, that he satisfied them and, and not the work of their hands. But there was an immediate fail in this test. Look, with me at verse 20. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning and it bred worms and stank and Moses was angry with them. Those wafers that were made with honey became maggot food in their cupboards and it stunk up their house the very blessing of God turned to a curse when they stopped trusting the Lord. That brings us then to our fourth principle. Christ is the feast that tests our appetite for obedience. Christ is the feast that tests our appetite for obedience. Loved ones, we face that same test in our sanctification, don't we? In our own journey to the promised land. God has given us the true and better manna, and we're tested. Is he enough? Is he enough? Is he enough? Or must we have something different? Tragically, many in this generation cried out for something different. Uh, A few years later, in Numbers chapter 11, uh, they complained. Five and six. We remember the fish that we ate in Egypt and cost nothing, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up, and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. How many times do we do that in our hearts? I want those those things that the world has, but all I have is this manna, this Christ to look at. Now granted we wouldn't say it like that, would we? We're too sophisticated to say it like that, but that's at the heart of this distrust. You see, in giving us Christ, God is testing us. He's, is, is my son enough for you? Is he enough? Is the feast enough? And so examine yourself, loved ones. Are you still at this point trusting that Christ is enough for you? Or are you looking at the means? This is so easy to do. Just imagine you're in the wilderness right here. Your wife and your children are eating those delicious honey wafers for supper, and the sun is getting really low. And you look at your portion, and you think to yourself, I better save it. I don't know if God is going to provide again tomorrow morning. Perhaps his generosity has expired. I better rely on myself. Maybe we better start rationing for tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow, if if God does pull through, that I can gather all morning and all afternoon and all evening to make sure that we really have enough manna for the week. Does that rationalization sound familiar to you? Or at least some variation of it? You might say, but Pastor Josh... We need to be practical here. God calls us to to work and he calls us to do it diligently. And I say, Amen. And that's what verse 21 is for. Verse 21 says that the manna melted when the sun grew hot. So if the Israelites weren't diligent as God called them to be to gather this manna, it would melt and they wouldn't eat that day. God doesn't bless slothfulness but neither does he bless us when we put our trust in the means. Loved ones, when we put our trust in the means, what we're doing is we're worshiping them. Did means create the heavens and the earth? Did did means come down and put on flesh and die on a cross for you? Did did means rise from the dead on the third day? God can work above or below or without means. He needs none of them. Why would we ever trust in them? Dear congregation, so so take the warning from this passage. If we put our trust in the means, what happens to the manna? It grows worms and it stinks. It becomes a curse. God will cause our means to rot if we make them our God. And if we're doing that, then turn back to the Lord. Rebuke yourself for thinking that it all depends on you. Christ is your life, not the works of your hands. So that's our fourth principle. That Christ is the feast that tests our appetite for obedience. Finally, Christ is a daily feast. Now, on that first evening, God gave them quail to eat in verse 13. It was a one-time event. There's a footnote for that, but it's a one-time event. But the manna was a daily gift. In verse 4, it was a day's portion to be gathered every day. Verse 21, morning by morning they were to gather it. Verse 26, six days every week you shall gather it. How long did God keep this up for? Look at verse 35. People of Israel ate the manna 40 years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And this is traced out in Joshua 5 verse 12. It says, the manna ceased. The day after they ate the produce of the land, the very first day that they ate the produce of that heavenly country, the manna from their earthly country ceased. Forty years of manna, their whole journey to the promised land, God never failed one time to give them the angel's bread. (laughs) What hope will Christ ever fail to give us manna on any day from, from now to glory. No, that's why these things were written. And that's our fifth principle. God gives us Christ to feast on every day all the way to glory. Loved ones, don't you see that this is what the scripture means when it says his steadfast love never ceases, his mercies are new every morning. His mercies are new every morning. The the Father does not give us Christ just one time, one and done, like the quail. Now, now certainly, I think there's a lesson there. Flesh was given to Israel on that first night. On that first night, blood had to be shed. So on Calvary's cross, Christ died one time for our sins. Hebrews 9 10.14 says, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Christ is given one time. He shed his blood one time for our justification. And then for our sanctification, we get to feast on him day after day after day. World without end. And so here's our charge this morning. Gather up the mercies of Christ every day. Eat the manna of Christ every day. They are are right there waiting for you to pick up those wafers of honey. Where, where, Where do we find them at? They're right on the the pages of scripture. There's a relationship between the incarnate word and the inscripturated word. Where do we find Christ, the incarnate word? We find him in the inscripturated word. Scripture itself makes this connection and we we heard it in Ben's reading this morning when speaking of the manna. Moses in Deuteronomy 8.3, this is the passage that Jesus quotes in Luke 4. Moses says, The Lord humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, that you may know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Loved ones, this is how you live by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In those written words, you find Jesus, the the incarnate word. You find the sweetness that your soul needs. You find that meat and that marrow and that fine-aged wine. And no doubt you've experienced this before. Haven't you been reading the Bible all by yourself before? And you do the same thing that the Israelites do. You come to a passage where you see the glory and grace of God. And you say, what is it? What type of God is this? God wants to meet you in his word. And he will do that every day, just like he did with the Israelites. So gather the manna, gather that angel's food every day before the sun grows hot, and you'll find a light that you never knew existed. You'll say with the Israelites, what kind of a God is this? You'll find a feast in the wilderness for your soul. Let's pray. Oh God, as we, about, as we are about to eat of this feast of the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, we pray that you would prepare our hearts now. We thank you that we opened our mouths, Lord, and you indeed filled it. So please do it again, not only in word, but also in sacrament. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.